we now turn to the Word of God. You may find the passage in your bulletin, or of course in your Bible. The scripture this morning is a single verse from 1 Chronicles 29-11. Hear now God's Word. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Good morning, everyone. There are, I think, significantly more of you here than I saw this morning a little bit earlier. I wonder, wonder why that could be. It certainly can't have anything to do with it snowing at what felt like 7:30 in the morning. But we're here in God's house together. Amen. Yes, and this is. Um, this is special. We're grateful for Franklin Church allowing us to be here, um, for opening up their house for us to worship in. And it's also a great day, and this was true in the first service too, that um, sometimes when you come up here as a preacher, you feel like the sermon has already started. Now I know you all don't feel that way, but, but I do because the liturgy and the songs that we sing touch on the exact same themes as to what we're going to look at today. And that, that is as it should be. And so I want to get us started with a little bit of congregational participation this morning. So by a show of hands, uh, let me know if you are familiar with this particular saying. It's not how you start, but it's how you finish that matters. Who has heard that before? Pretty much everybody, not quite everyone, but uh, good. Um, so I looked online to try to see who first said that phrase. It's, it's inconclusive. We don't know who did, but it's most uh, said by or quoted by life coach Zig Ziglar. People know who, who that is. And then also Olympic medalist swimmer Michael Phelps. Interesting. I don't know if one of them, I kind of doubt that one of them was the one that first said it, but it is a good phrase, and I have used it as motivation for either myself or other people, like my kids, whether it's school or activities or things like that. It teaches us that what has happened in the past is in the past, and we work toward the ending. But as with any truism, there's an aspect of it that is kind of incomplete, and in that it oversimplifies the reality that we live in. Because while the ending is the most important thing of all, the beginning and sometimes the long middle is what drives and shapes where we end up. And this is true of many things in our lives. And it's true with the Lord's Prayer, which we are concluding this series. This is the sixth and final week of six weeks on the Lord's Prayer. And we're covering the very last thing that is said at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And it's not disconnected from everything that came before. In fact, we are called to end up exactly there because of what Jesus has taught us to pray, the themes that he has taught us to focus on. And that closing that we end up with is what the church has historically called a doxology. And so we're going to look today at what it means to close with a doxology. Join me in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the snow and even the weather that seems to change back and forth so rapidly reminds us in the opposite way that you never change. And that is such a blessing and a gift to know that you are steadfast in all things and that you are sovereign God over this worship service, 
over all that is sung and all that has said and will be said. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you illuminate your word for us as you promised to do. That we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see the glory and mystery of the truth that's contained within the pages of your word, and that it would cause us to praise our great God. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So there are three things that I'd like to cover as we close this series on the, on the Lord's Prayer for this morning. Um, they are these three things. If you're taking notes, there's a page for notes there. The missing or added final line of the prayer, that depends on your perspective. The what's and the whys of doxology, what do I mean by a doxology? And then lastly, how do we close a hearty amen? Can I get a practice on that? A hearty amen. amen. Very good. We're off to a good start here. So those, those three things. And we'll, we'll take up the first one right now. The missing or added final lines, kind of the elephant in the room, or the elephant may be missing from Scripture, depending upon your perspective. You know the line, for yours or for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, or in some translations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, your opinion on whether or not that should be in there, in the Bible and part of the Lord's Prayer, will be directly related to one or both of two things. Your Christian background, the particular tradition that you grew up in, and perhaps even the translation of the Bible that you prefer. So if you grew up in a Roman Catholic background, or if you grew up in the Orthodox Church, you probably are unaccustomed to saying that line at the end of the prayer. It's either reserved for the priest or actually isn't said at all, depending upon the situation. If, however, you grew up in a Protestant or an evangelical background or a little bit of both, you always say that ending, most likely. In fact, you always say it even if you find yourself at a Catholic wedding or mass or something like that. And I see a couple chuckles. Uh, who has done this? Everybody else stops at evil one, and you just kind of plow right on ahead. I know um, I'm getting better at that as the years go by, but it's definitely something that I have done myself. So the question is, who is right? You know, does it belong in the Bible, and is it something we should say at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Well, those are two questions, so, so two answers. The first, uh, we'll look at it this way. Scholars are pretty unanimous, close to unanimous, that the final line would not have been part of the original Lord's Prayer as given by Jesus. And the main reason we think this is the earliest manuscripts that we have, it actually isn't in there. And those manuscripts were not available at the time of the translation of the first English translations of the Bible. So the King James or the Geneva Bible, they used later manuscripts at that time. We have discovered earlier ones since then that do not have it. It does show up, however, very early in the church. Is anyone, this will fully impress me, is anyone familiar with what is called the, the Didache or the Didache? David, thank you for raising your hand high in both services today. That's, uh, that's good. Yes, so um, this is a document dated from as early as potentially the first century, around 90 AD, or at least the very, or maybe the very beginning of the second century, and it was a teaching document used by the earliest Christians to teach others. And in the section on prayer, it contains the Lord's Prayer, and it adds this at the end. 
So even though the manuscripts don't have it, it was used in this way often at the very earliest days of the church. So, what should we do? Well, it probably shouldn't be in our Bibles, because what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't profess that something is part of Scripture if it actually isn't. Amen? Amen. We want people to trust God's Word. We want trustworthiness when it comes around His Word, that what we have is the closest it possibly can be by the work of the Holy Spirit keeping all these manuscripts together so that we can know that what we have is indeed the Word of God. But that's not the same question as to whether we should say it or not. Should we say it? I think, yes, we absolutely should say it. The church has done that for a very long time, connected to it in some way. And if you think about the themes of the Lord's Prayer, it follows from those themes. Themes like, uh, excuse me, I lost my place. There we go. The holiness of our Father, the coming of God's kingdom, the forgiveness of our sin, the meeting of our daily needs. The taking away of evil, delivering us from the evil one, all of these themes, as we think on them, as we learn them, as we pray them, they should drive us to praise our God for all that he is and all that he has done with overflowing God-glorifying praise. Praise that lifts our hearts toward heaven just at the very minute that we are still here living this life on earth. And that is what I mean by calling it a doxology. So let's look at, at what that word means. So a doxology, doxologia in the Greek, it's two words put together, the first doxa, it simply means brightness, splendor, radiance. It was used outside of the Bible in the first century to explain jewelry, someone being adorned and truly beautiful. And here it's ascribed to our God because he is beautiful. Amen? Yeah. He is gorgeous. He is above all things in splendor. And then the second half of the word logia or logos is stated word or saying. So we put them together. It is vocalized praise to our God that comes at the end of this prayer. Praise that we lift up to him. Our response after thinking on these things is to utter, to sing, to proclaim all that our God is and that he gets the glory. Now, I want to look at three reasons that this particular doxology fits well at the end of the Lord's Prayer. So the first is that a doxology would fit well because it is a scriptural practice. Even though this one is not in scripture, it is a very scriptural practice to say them at the end of certain occurrences that cause us to turn our eyes, our minds, our hearts toward God. And we see them throughout Scripture. We see them in the Old Testament and in the New. In New Testament passages like 1 Timothy 1.17, to the King of Kings, or excuse me, to the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We see them lifted up after the Exodus from Egypt, after the receiving of the law. We see them in the Psalms. Psalms that are joyful and high on the mountaintop, we see doxologies. Psalms that are difficult and low in the pit, we still see doxologies and praises to God. Even at the end of the Bible, in the new creation, Revelation 5.13, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
The passage, I want to I look at the passage in the bulletin, if you'll take a look at that. It is a doxology from 1 Chronicles 29. It is a doxology stated, sung probably, by King David. Because what has happened just before this is David has given his son Solomon a project to build the temple. And so Solomon is carrying that out. David helps contribute out of his own coffers financially toward that project. And he exhorts all the people to do the same thing. And they do. A lot. And so he erupts in this praise to God. And look how similar some of the wording is to what ends up in our doxology. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. David directs his praise to God. He says yours three times in the prayer in reference to things like greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty, ownership of property, the kingdom, all of it he describes to he ascribes to God. And what's interesting is Solomon's the one who's been over the project. The people are the one who is given, who have given. But David says, everything belongs to you, God. Everything is yours. You are the one who has made this happen. It is only by your grace and your power. And in that, there is great application for us. Now, there's obvious application for us in that we are building a building. We have asked people to contribute. You have been faithful, and that is a reason to praise our God. But it goes far broader than that. The Lord has protected and kept our congregation together when we had to leave another building. Amen. Amen? The Lord has grown our congregation and brought new people into this small body of Christ and made it an ever-growing section of the body of Christ. And for that, we should be grateful. We've had partnerships like here at Franklin Church where we can carry out our ministries and continue to learn of who our God is so that we know who this God is that we are praising. And on and on it goes. And all of that has very little to do with us. Even if you think about something as simple as coming here this morning, every faculty that you used, every desire that was in your heart is placed there by the living God given to you to bring you to worship him. It's glory to God all the way down. Amen? Amen? That is who he is, and that's why we praise him. So, second thing. The doxology fits well because of what it is. It is not empty praise. It is not shallow praise. It is rich praise because it is built on the scriptures. It is built on the right belief and doctrine of God. We live in a time in our world where we are encouraged not to recognize that we are made in God's image and subservient to him, but that we are told that we can effectively remake God in our own image, whatever image we find the most palatable, and the resulting creature, which is some idealized version of ourself, is not one worthy of worship. It is one that's very much like us. But our God is high above the heavens. We are the ones that are low and greatly need him. And when we focus on that, that is the one who is worthy of praise. He alone. And this is true even when we don't feel like it. Even when we are going through times where we may not feel like praising God, very similar to what we talked about 
when it comes to forgiveness, that we may not feel like forgiving, our God is still worthy of praise, even on those days. Amen? Amen. And when we do praise Him, even at those times, it's amazing how the Spirit works within our lives. We praise God sometimes because we feel like it, and our feelings grow more for Him. We praise God sometimes even when we don't feel like it, but as we focus on who He is, that praise itself causes our feelings to grow more and more for Him, which leads to more praise. This is exactly how it works. This is why we set up our worship services precisely this way, where we have prayers, we have liturgy, we have songs that are sung that speak to who our God is so that we are ready to receive his word and we are ready to praise him. Right belief leads to deep praise. Wrong belief leads to shallow praise at best. And so we know who our God is and that is why we worship him and that is why it makes sense to praise him with doxology. And then finally, uh, thirdly, the traditional doxology fits well because of its connection to the rest of the prayer. Because it restates the theological themes of the prayer, things like kingdom and power and glory, all of which either overtly or sort of implied are in the prayer. And this is true of 1 Chronicles 29.11 as well. And it's true because no matter what the circumstances are or the particular aspect of God's prayer, God's uh, character that is causing us to praise, it's the same God that we're praising. Same God in David's day, same God when Jesus gave the prayer, and same God for us today. And so our closing doxology is a reaffirmation that Jesus is king. If you look down and think about the context in which 1 Chronicles 29 says, who is the one who's raising this? King David. He's the king of his kingdom. And what does he say? Yours is the kingdom, God. You are the true king. It's an acknowledgement that God is in charge, and we are not. It is a surrender of our own kingdoms to him, recognizing that he is the one who is the head of the kingdom, that Jesus is king and we are his subjects. Also, the word power is in there. Power recognizes competence, ability, the, the ability to accomplish certain things. When Jesus gave this prayer, what was the state of the world? The Roman Empire and that power was all that was known to the people. That was their understanding of power. But yet they knew that something wasn't quite right, and Jesus is giving this prayer, and he is saying that you know, God is the one who carries all power. And in King David's day, he's saying, yes, we've done all this. We've built this temple, but we didn't do it ourselves. God is the one who did it. So it's a reaffirmation that God is the one with power. And that drives us to a point of glory. Do you know what the word glory means? It actually relates more to gravity than it does to anything else. It means weight. It means heaviness. It's as if this thing is so important and weighty that it bends everything around it in its direction. That is a description of who our God is. That is what it means to say that he is doxa. He is beautiful. He is glorious. And so we affirm in clear and direct terms that he is the one who is splendid and radiant. He is the one who is glorious. And after we've done all that, after we've praised him because of what we have prayed, we end, as we do with all prayers, with a hearty 
Amen. amen. Any little hearty amen. Not only this doxology, but like I said, all prayers. This has been the practice of God's people for the longest of times. Way back in the Old Testament, we see prayers ending with amen. Throughout the New Testament, throughout the tradition of the church, it ends with amen. Why? Well, contrary to what may have been said at Congress about a year ago, it is not a gender-related term, the word <laughs> amen. No, the word amen is actually the same. It is true. You are saying, I agree with what has been said. So something is said that is right and true about our God, and we respond with amen, because it is true. This is why Jesus started many of his teaching sessions by saying the word amen at the very beginning, because what he was saying is, I'm the one who gives the verdict that what I'm about to say is true, because he's the Son of God himself. You can find it in your Bibles, it says, truly, truly, or verily, verily. That is the word amen, when truth is spoken. There's a short uh, writing from the 16th century by Martin Luther. It's called A Simple Way to Pray. And he is teaching a friend of his how to, how to pray. And he's using the Lord's Prayer as a model for that. Um, the person that he's teaching is Master Peter the Barber. Yes, this is Luther's barber, because even barbers need to know how to pray. We all, we all do. And this is what he writes when he gets to the very end. Notice at last that you have made the amen strong every time and no doubt. God is surely listening to you with every grace and is saying yes to your prayer. Do not think yourself that you are kneeling or standing there alone. For all Christendom, all upright Christians are there with you and you among them in a unanimous, harmonious prayer which God cannot disdain. And do not leave that prayer unless you have thought, All right, God has heard my prayer, and I truly know this for certain, for that is what amen means. Christians, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to learn from Jesus to pray and to pray to the living God. Amen? Amen. amen. It is every time we pray a joy to know that Christians across even the invisible church are gathered with us and at our side. Amen? Amen. It is amazing to know that the living God, the one who is sovereign over all things, stoops down to hear us. Amen? Amen. Okay, so what I'd like to, to close with today, a little bit different than what we normally do. So if you've been to our church for a while, you're, you're familiar with normally at the end of the sermon, um, the preacher would pray for a few minutes, and then we would close together with the Lord's Prayer. But I thought, well, we've done an entire series on the Lord's Prayer for six weeks, so we should spend a little deeper in it, a little more time in it than that. And what we have been learning is that this isn't just something to be said from our memory, but it is the themes that Jesus gives us that guides what it is that we pray. So we're going to reverse it a little bit today. So if you flip to the page, it should be right next to where the Lord's Prayer is. You'll see kind of a, a line, a division between each section of the Lord's Prayer as we have gone through them in this series. And so we're going to say the first line together out loud, and then I will pray that theme very briefly. And then we'll say the second line together out loud, and then I'll pray that theme very briefly, and then we'll come
come to the close with, you guessed it, a doxology that ends in amen. All right, are we ready? Okay, let's join together. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You alone are God and there is no other. You are perfectly holy, infinitely wise, truly good, and forever unchanging. Lead us to shine the light of your holiness in dark places. May we remember that you are our Father, having adopted us as your children through faith in Christ. For you are infinitely greater than all earthly fathers, for even the best father among us is but a shadow of your goodness, faithfulness, and love. May we run to you as a child runs to their father. And continuing together. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is now. Almighty God, we have built our own kingdoms. We have done so on self-centered hearts and filled them with idols to our own glory. Bring your heavenly kingdom, God and thereby vanquish all other kingdoms from this world and cause us to surrender our lives to you. Holy Spirit, empower and equip us to serve as ambassadors of the true eternal kingdom. May we know and do your will, living in joyful obedience to your good commands, just as the saints and angels do in heaven. And continuing together. Give us today our daily bread. Loving Father, the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. You bless us and provide for our needs food, clothing, shelter, and far more. Bless us with physical health to live well in this world. Bless us with spiritual health to do your will this day and every day. Conform our desires to align with your perfect will. When we ask for things that are outside of your plan, O oh God, we thank you for telling us no. In all times, help us to trust your promise that you indeed are working for our ultimate good. And together, and forgive us our debts, and we also forgive our debts. Merciful God, forgive us our infinite debt to you. Forgive us the trespasses we have made beyond the boundaries of your commands. Forgive us our sins of commission and our sins of omission. Those sins that we know all too well and those we have quickly forgotten. May the forgiveness we have received by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ soften our hearts so that we would freely forgive others again and again, even when we don't feel like it and even though we cannot forget. And together, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Gracious Father, give us clarity to recognize when we are being enticed to sin by the things of this world. Give us humility to know our fleshly weaknesses. Give us wisdom to identify the schemes of Satan. Test us, God, but not to the point of our failing but for the purpose of our strengthening, making us steadfast, firm in our faith. We joyfully trust that the defeat of the devil is assured. 
For the victory has already been won through the shame of the cross and the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that, Father, we pray in his name. And we close together. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.